0: Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Okay, I told you that I had some exciting stuff coming out and this is one of those exciting things that I've really, really been looking forward to um, because today we are talking about economic evaluation and cost-effectiveness analysis in global pediatric oncology. It's a topic I find really, really interesting, and it's a topic that's really been underexplored in my estimation um, up until now. But there is now research coming out that uh, demonstrates, spoiler alert, that pediatric oncology is indeed cost-effective to treat. There's a lot of limitations with that statement, and there's a lot that is still unknown, but The information is all pointing in that direction so far. So, today on the podcast, I'm going to have on a guest to talk more about cost effectiveness. So, I will be speaking with Dr. Avram Denberg, who is a staff oncologist and clinician scientist in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. He has a master's of science in health policy, planning, and financing from the London School of Economics and a PhD in Health Policy from McMaster University. So Dr. Denberg's research centers on the analysis and strengthening of childhood cancer systems with a specific focus on issues related to pharmaceutical policy and drug access. So he, along with many collaborators, recently published a paper titled The Cost-Effectiveness of Treating Burkitt Lymphoma in Uganda. We will discuss the question that motivated this paper, uh, the methods that they used to evaluate costs and what the results mean both for treating Burkitt lymphoma in Uganda, but then also within the global pediatric oncology community more generally. One of the things you will hear come up will be DALIs, which are Disability Adjusted Life Years, and that's an instrument to quantify disease burden used in a variety of settings in global health and has recently been applied more specifically to pediatric oncology. And this was actually the topic of conversation of episode 16 with Dr. Lisa Force and Nikhil Bakta, who recently published a paper um, looking at the total amount of DALI's disability adjusted life years that pediatric cancer is responsible for globally each year. So if you are interested, It may be worth your time to listen to that conversation first because we spend some time looking at what is a DALI, how is it calculated, what is it used for, and what are its limitations. We don't discuss those specific issues as much in this episode, so if you want a little bit better of an understanding of this instrument, then I encourage you to listen to that one first. However, you definitely don't need to, and you can take away a lot of information from this episode just listening to it alone. All right. Um, Again, this is a conversation that I enjoyed quite a bit. I have some specific personal biases and health system metrics and economic metrics in particular are very, very interesting to me. So I enjoyed this conversation a lot, and I think you will too. Okay, let's get to the conversation. I give you Dr. Avram Dinberg. Okay, everybody. Well, I am here with Avi, and uh, I'm going to talk to him today. About a paper he recently published called "The Cost Effectiveness of Treating Burkitt Lymphoma in Uganda," um, where we're going to talk about obviously costs in childhood cancer, but hopefully we will use this conversation as a as a scaffolding for the a bigger conversation about the role of costs in global oncology more generally. So, uh, welcome to the podcast, Avi.
1: Thanks so much, Mark. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here.
0: Great. If you can, just can you say um, a little bit about who you are, what you do normally, and kind of how you came to this work? Sure
1: thing. So I'm a pediatric oncologist that specializes in solid tumors or the treatment of solid tumors in children at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. And I focus part of my research on oncology for children in a global health context, along with many uh, colleagues and collaborators around the world, uh, with a view to trying trying to improve outcomes for kids with cancer regardless of where they live, recognizing that there are pretty huge discrepancies uh, based on geography and social circumstance and how kids do when they are diagnosed with cancer. So a fair proportion of my time is spent on research as well as clinical work, and a fair chunk of that is spent on uh, thinking about that the problem of cancer in children in a global health context. And I guess I should uh, say I really would like to um, send a shout out and a huge appreciation to my collaborators on this work. Really, this was an um, entirely collaborative work that wouldn't have been possible without deep expertise and commitment from uh, the collaborators on this, the co-authors on this paper. And so uh, I'll name them out. Uh, and I really want to acknowledge each of them. Nazifa Leher was uh, a student with me at the time of this paper and really spent uh, countless hours working on it. So a, a huge amount of credit goes to her. And this partnership was one with both the Uganda Cancer Institute in Kampala, Uganda. And that was led by Dr. Joyce Kambugu, who's one of the sole pediatric oncologists in the country there and a, and a real inspiration, and Dr. Jackson Orem, who's the head of uh, the Cancer Institute there, uh, as well as with the Fred Hutch Cancer Center in Seattle, uh, led by, uh, at the time, Dr. Corey Kasper and his team. So uh, the other co-authors were Innocent Mutjava, Suzanne McGoldrick, and Erica Cecil. And uh, really, again, I want to emphasize how this was truly collaborative work and wouldn't have been possible without any of those people.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, you can tell that a lot of work went into this paper, so it's entirely appropriate to set, uh, to acknowledge the entire team. So, why don't you go ahead and tell us what question were was your team trying to answer coming to this paper, and what was the general perception about costs? Um, I, I guess prior to studying the question.
1: Yeah, Mark, I think that's a really excellent question, and I'll take one step back with it. Uh, we're, uh, you know, I, I just told you I practice in both a high-income country context clinically. And do research on questions pertaining to high-income country contexts, and I also do work related to low and middle-income country contexts when it comes to cancer. And we're sort of in two different worlds entirely uh, in respect of understanding the health system dynamics and the costs and cost-effectiveness uh, attached to childhood cancer treatment and interventions in in, in these two different kinds of um, worlds. So, in my work as an oncologist in um, for lack of a better term, the global north or in Canada, we're constantly dealing with um, worries about costs at the margin in an in increasingly sophisticated and increasingly expensive health system. So we're in a space where questions about new medicines, new technologies, new interventions, in a variety of specialties, including childhood cancer, uh, are always questioned for their value for money, their cost effectiveness, recognizing our resources are scarce, Uh, And that technologies are um, proceeding apace and arguably going to overwhelm our health system capacities in terms of cost. On the flip side, in many low income country contexts, childhood cancer has not really been attended to much at all by virtue of health system strength um, and organization, and arguably also by a perception that it is just too complex and too costly to treat. So even uh, sort of hoary or long used treatments in the context of curing children with cancer in high-income countries, are often not employed in low-income countries by virtue of uh, worries about cost and and effectiveness. So in the context of a place like Uganda, demonstrating what costs are attached to childhood cancer treatment and how cost-effective that treatment might be in terms of return on investment is something that's been very little studied uh, globally at all in low-income countries, and that could be of huge value to both health system uh, administrators and policymakers when thinking about their priorities for investment in their health system.
0: Yeah, and living in this dual world where you live and work in a high-income country, but you're also doing academic work uh, with costs in Uganda and other lower-middle-income countries, what do you see as the perception in the broader global oncology community as to uh, what are the costs associated with treating cancer in places that are resource constrained? Do you think the perception is generally one of it's it's very costly. And so maybe not, you know, I don't want to say not worth the the cost, but maybe there are other uh, ways to spend money since uh, childhood cancer would be a costly thing to treat or yeah, I guess I'm just curious how the people you interact with or how you would characterize the uh, the viewpoint that you see.
1: Yeah, I think it depends. It's a great question and it depends entirely on who you're asking. So amidst our own internal community of childhood cancer uh, carers, providers, parent and patient advocates, I think we're all of a mind that this is a real priority health issue and um, that it's a likely huge return on investment and therefore something that should be prioritized recognizing our biases and that these are the kids we care for and care about um, most of the time. I think if you're asking a health system administrator or policymaker uh, from a low-income country context, uh, they're going to be focused on uh, return on investment and what they can do with the money that they put into a system, recognizing that that those resources are quite scarce and they have a lot of uh, health system issues to grapple with. So, this notion of opportunity costs, um in other words, what you can what how you can spend that money if you're not spending it on something else, is a big issue in economic evaluation and in health system priority setting. and I think the conceit that uh, childhood cancer is too complex and costly to invest in because the opportunity costs would be too great. in other words, that if you weren't spending that on childhood cancer, you could spend it on the elimination of measles or on nutritional supplementation for um, malnourished children or something of that sort um, is a huge uh, bugbear for us in the world of childhood cancer and something that I think persists across most uh, resource-constrained contexts. And I think that's something that um, is largely a myth In the sense that there hasn't been rigorous data to prove or disprove that conceit. And that's something we're trying to um, debunk or provide some evidence around so that it doesn't remain a myth, but it's something that health system um, administrators, politicians, um, policymakers can have some strong data on to make decisions in a fair and sustainable way.
0: Uh, I think that's very well said for a uh, very difficult issue to navigate. So that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So coming to this question of what is the cost of treatment of a childhood cancer, in this paper, it's Burkitt lymphoma. Um, So what is the cost of treating Burkitt lymphoma in Uganda? How do you approach the question? Like, How do you start to think about which costs are relevant and um, how do you capture them?
1: That's a great question. So I think as with any study, um, it's a balance between uh, the perfect and the good and not letting the perfect, be the enemy of the good. So balancing what's reasonable uh, and what's ideal. And, in, um, and, you know, increasingly there are well-tested uh, guides and tried and true methods of doing economic evaluation, both in high and low-income country contexts. So really we wanted to, to sort of strike a balance between what we thought was feasible in the Uganda Cancer Institute context in terms of both the outcomes data to collect, or the effectiveness data to collect, and the cost data to collect. Um, and those are really the two big tranches of data you need to do this, right? You need to compare how much it costs to deliver a particular program of care with what you get out of it, what the outputs are in terms of some metric of effectiveness. And the way we chose to approach this was to, uh, broadly speaking, leave to World Health Organization methodology for this that's broadly accepted. Um, albeit with some controversial um, premises behind it and um, some imperfections. Uh, and we chose to approach it in a mix of both retrospective and prospective data collection to try to, again, balance reasonableness with uh, ideal and accurate
0: data. Got it. Can you go ahead and describe what your methodology was? Yeah.
1: So for from the point of view of collecting costs uh, and effectiveness data, for the costs We collected these largely prospectively uh, and these we broke down into what we called variable costs, fixed costs and family costs. There's different nomenclature for this in different approaches to economic evaluation, but they capture broadly the same um, categories of data. So the variable costs are things that change uh, for each patient based on episodic care, like the drugs you received, the lab tests you got. Uh, the procedures you underwent. Fixed costs are those sorts of things that um, change not episodically, but over time, uh, and that need to be allocated then proportionally to each patient. So things like overhead costs for running a hospital, and things like personnel costs for paying your physicians, nurses, etc. when they're salaried. And those things we have to parcel out uh, to a per patient cost Um, by making some um, assumptions about how much would accrue to each patient. And then there are the last major category of costs we captured is what we call family costs, which are those sorts of costs incurred by patients and their families in the social realm. And so those might be things in this context relevant to getting to and from the hospital, so transportation, uh, to lost economic productivity for not being at work, and uh, to accommodation and food that's uh, needed uh, around the time of treatment as a result of the child uh, being in the hospital and undergoing treatment. So we, we collected most of those costs prospectively, although there were some that were available in databases retrospectively for patients. And then the effectiveness data, in other words, how well kids did with their treatment, and their overall survival from the treatment was uh, a mix of prospective and retrospective data. Again, depending on when the patients enrolled into an ongoing trial that was on uh, about the effectiveness of Burkitt lymphoma therapy at the UCI. And I mentioned we broadly followed WHO choice methodology or the economic evaluation guide put out by WHO uh, that attempts to ascertain value for money uh, in a metric called the cost per dally averted. Or cost per dally, rather.
0: Okay. Yeah. Can you elaborate on what that means as a cost per dally?
1: Yeah. So any economic evaluation of this sort is, again, a comparison of costs to effects. And uh, a dally is a construct that has been incorporated into this WHO choice approach that is a disability-adjusted life here. So what this attempts to do is to value life, uh, a hard concept to get your head around, actually, uh, based on um, how well you are, uh, with one uh, being perfect health and anything less than that being less than perfect health. And a weight is applied based on your level of, quote-unquote, disability for a given health state that brings that full year of life, healthy life, down by depending on how severe the the disability or disease is. And so what this metric does is try to look at um, how much it costs to avert disability over the course of a life or avert loss of life weighted by disability over the course of a life. Um, There's a closely related metric um, that is called a quality, which is a quality adjusted life year which again looks at um, how much life is valued in different health states, weighted uh, either by patients themselves or by the general public, and does the inverse. So it looks at how much quality adjusted life can be gained or saved by virtue of an intervention. Um, so it's sort of six or one, half a dozen of another, but the WHO choice methodology, which is broadly accepted in a number of countries around the world, uh, was the one we used to look at cost per DALY.
0: Got it. And we actually, or at the time of this recording, I had previously recorded an episode with Lisa Force and Nikhil um, who just released a paper about the Global Burden of Disease Study, where they quantified the burden of childhood cancer uh, globally in terms of DALYs. And we talked about them for a while because they're interesting instruments, <clears throat> and there's some advantages and disadvantages to using them, it seems. So if you are interested in hearing a little bit more about DALYs, we won't Um, Elaborate on them too much more this episode, but you can go back. um, You can go back and check out episode 16, uh, where I talked to Dr. Lisa Force and Nikhil Bhakta. Um, Okay, but jumping back,
1: Lisa and Nikhil are friends and collaborators, so definitely check their work out.
0: Excellent. Yes, they're uh, they they're very articulate and well spoken as to how you quantify the burden of childhood cancer globally. So it was an awesome conversation. Anyway, so we're going to look at costs per dally and you said as a way to quantify how much it costs to avert certain amount of disease burden and why is that better than using say just total costs um or it, you know does it give you a different perspective or is it, are there different ways to um divide up uh how you know how you measure the cost
1: that's another great question i mean i guess the first thing i'll say is that i don't think it needs to be used in isolation, at the expense of looking at total costs, and I imagine this is something we'll we'll circle back to. But you know, really taking this data entirely out of context, um, without looking at the budget impact or the feasibility of implementing this kind of uh, this kind of intervention at the health system level, would not be wise. And most health systems wouldn't base their decisions around which things to prioritize based solely on. a a cost effectiveness or cost utility metric. Um, But the reason it's helpful in addition to just raw costs is it gives some semblance of value for money, return on investment that pure costs don't, and it allows you to compare across interventions, which I think is really important. So you might have a larger population with a given disease um, and therefore spend a lot of money on a particular intervention, simply by virtue of disease burden, for example, and therefore have larger total costs. Um, But it might be a very, very cost-effective intervention in the sense that you get huge bang for buck. Uh, For all all the cost inputs, the return on investment or the amount of uh, efficacy or effectiveness in your outcome might be quite large. So it really just does allow you to compare across interventions to have some sense of what's working well uh, and for how much money.
0: That's good. That's a similar point that came out in my previous discussion with Lisa and Nick Hill. That these measures, while useful, are something that need to be contextualized because you cannot just go off of the DALI number and say this is the right answer as to where to prioritize your resources—the one that with the highest DALI. So I think that's good to acknowledge that it's very contextual, um, and so that means it needs to be lots of discussion informed by the amount of DALIs here that you are saving with your intervention.
1: Yeah, and I guess the only other thing, Mark, that I'd add in terms of the cost effectiveness um, thresholds that are used by WHO Choice is that in addition to just a cost per DALI metric, they also make a normative assumption about what is cost effective based on GDP level thresholds. So you can imagine just saying cost per DALI is, I don't know, 300 bucks. Doesn't necessarily mean anything, even though it is a cost to effectiveness comparison or ratio. Um, You have to be able to say something like, well, it's less than this other intervention, so to compare across interventions, or it's less than a predefined threshold that we consider in our health system or internationally cost effective. And so what WHO choice does is considers things that are less than uh, a ratio of three to one in terms of. Cost per dolly to uh, local GDP, they consider that cost-effective. And anything an intervention less than a one-to-one ratio between cost per dolly and GDP is considered very cost-effective. Okay.
0: And w- just for the sake of terminology, GDP being the gross domestic product per capita, so per, per the all the valuable things that a person produces in a year on average?
1: You got it. And that's a national annual GDP that they're considering. So you can imagine that these, while well, these thresholds are fixed and clear and can allow comparisons of cost per DALY kind of across um, health systems um, and contextualized within health systems, you can imagine that they're of themselves, these thresholds, very controversial um, and subject to a lot of uh, discussion in the academic literature and in
0: policy fora. I see. Yeah. And this may be uh, a rabbit hole. We may not want to fall down. But can you say a little bit about where this threshold came from? Because I'm not real familiar with this methodology. So it's interesting that it's um, what you said, three to one of GDP uh, of per capita GDP or one to one.
1: Yeah. In other words, if it costs less than three times the national annual GDP per capita, we would call it cost effective by this um, metric or threshold. And if it's less than the national annual GDP per capita, it's highly cost-effective or very cost-effective. Yeah. In terms of where they came from, they were promulgated as maybe too formal a word, but they were articulated in the context of the initial publication, uh, to the best of my knowledge, of the WHO Choice Methodologies Approach that I believe was published in 2003. And they came out of from work the lead authors of that who were related to those doing the global burden of disease, uh, project. Um, so that's something that if people are interested in, they could definitely go check out that seminal publication from the world health organization. Well, as to why these, these specific thresholds were set uh, that I wasn't privy to, you know, in the words of from Hamilton, I wasn't in the room when it happened. So I don't quite know, um, <laughs> But I presume it was based on a desire to, again, make some uh, totalizing and comparative assumptions across different countries to be able to make some sense of these different interventions in a country context um, to decide what are priority health interventions.
0: Yeah, uh, it seems like I, or I have the intuition that just like you said, it, the threshold seems to more facilitate comparison across countries and across contexts than an actual explanation of, in reality, this is going to feel cost-effective to you who are implementing it. you think that's fair?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, If I'm remembering right, I think it was part of the Commission on Macroeconomics and Health. So that was sort of part of what they were endeavoring to do, right? Really try to make sense of these things across system contexts um, to help policymakers both uh, internationally and nationally prioritize certain health interventions as a core package, and uh, make some sense of how to implement them in their given jurisdictions. So it has that power for sure. It does have some limitations.
0: Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, that's the thing we keep coming back to in these kind of conversations. These metrics are super, super powerful and super, super useful. You just have to frame them in the right way, and you have to understand their limitations. That it's not necessarily reality. Like we're not necessarily putting a real dollar sign on um, what is you know the cost of a, a child's life, but we are. Creating some sort of measure that we can use to make practical decisions.
1: Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's both be conscious of the limitations of these kinds of approaches, and I don't think most people are, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, be aware of the need for nuanced data on health system and political context when trying to interpret these data and when trying to implement interventions based on them. So that's my personal plug for. Research in the realm of health and social policy analysis. I think there's a lot of focus these days on economic evaluation because numbers are sexy and putting uh, a price tag on interventions is very powerful as a symbol um, shorthand for value. But value can't be captured by costs or by, um, you know, cost effectiveness, effectiveness thresholds alone. And certainly the the complexity and nuance of political prioritization of health interventions is never going to be encapsulated by cost-effectiveness thresholds alone. Um, so you need all of that and more to make these decisions in an evidence-based and sustainable way.
0: Yeah. Um, this may go really far afield, but I've spent the last year or so uh, improving my own statistical um, abilities, and this conversation reminds me exactly of the conversation I have with people about p-values. That they are useful in certain contexts, but you need to know their limitations and need to know why they exist and what they tell you. Um, So it seems like, you know, that uh, experience crosses discipline is that when you come up with measures, you really need to understand their limits and the information that's contained within them. So anyway.
1: Absolutely. And we tend to be lazier than that on an everyday basis for lots of good reasons, right? We tend to want to refer to the totalizing p-value or the totalizing ICER or cost per Dally. Yep. Uh, the world's not that simple.
0: <laughs> yep. No, we've, there's ambiguity embedded in all of these numbers, and you need to know what it's doing. Absolutely. So, well, very good. Um, well, getting back to the study, before we dive into the results, I have one other question. Uh, just practically speaking, knowing how research happens, which is gathering the data and shaping it into a way that is analyzable, is oftentimes the most difficult, most time-consuming, and maybe most painful part of a study. And so just thinking about all the costs that you, or all the information on the costs that you gathered with variable costs, fixed costs, family costs, like, how do you just practically go about gathering all of this information? And maybe that's why you gave um, a lot of recognition to your team at the beginning, that it seems like this is going to take a big effort by a lot of people to pull all of these numbers from all these various places.
1: Yeah, I mean, you said it just as well as I can and took the words out of my mouth. Uh, this was a labor of love that really um, began with and ended with the folks at the Uganda Cancer Institute. Um, so they are the ones who deserve most of the credit here. And, um, you know, I also mentioned the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center. There, this was a longstanding partnership between the Fred Hutch and UCI to uh, implement a program of therapy for children with Burkitt lymphoma and more broadly to uh, help uh, advance cancer care in Uganda. And, uh, you know, the UCI has been at this for a long time. Uh, it's one of the oldest cancer institutions in the world and certainly in Africa and has a storied history for making strides in the treatment of children and adults with cancer in the region and in the continent. And Joyce and Jackson and their teams, Innocent Mujeva, and all the rest of the folks at the UCI who worked on this really um, began sculpting an edifice for data collection long before I got involved my team uh, and continued it and will continue it long after. So they're the ones who deserve the real credit here. Um, and it is, as you say, a, a, a crazy amount of work to collect all this data, both retrospectively and prospectively in an accurate way. Uh, so they did a fantastic job.
0: Yeah, the unsung heroes of the science world are the people who go out fearlessly and <laughs> capture numbers and put them into spreadsheets or other you know, ways to evaluate them. So I, I appreciate that.
1: Hopefully not entirely unsung, but absolutely you're right that, uh, yes, they get a little bit less of the limelight sometimes,
0: yeah, um okay, well, why don't we go ahead and dive into the results of your study? So you analyzed all these costs, the variable costs, the fixed costs, and the family costs, you weighed them against the effectiveness of treatment um, and you came up with a number that dallys, uh the cost per dally, I think right, yeah, yes, um, uh, you came up with a number cost per dally and other. Uh, results. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what you found?
1: So, you know, it's funny, as you say, studies like this, most of the effort and most of the time and most of the interesting bits go into how do you design the study and how do you actually collect the data and what assumptions do you have to make and things you have to put into place to make reasonable estimates come out the other end of the sausage maker. The actual results themselves are fairly simple and fairly sort of discreetly summed up. And I don't think earth-shattering, except insofar as they demonstrate, as some other studies have done, that childhood cancer is wildly cost-effective when at least considering those WHO choice thresholds. So really what we showed is that for about nine, just under $100 uh, US per child, um that was our cost per dally averted was just under 100 bucks u.s in international dollars which is a way of representing uh kind of the purchasing power of dollars in a given country so how many of these dollars can buy the same amount as a u.s dollar would buy in the u.s it was uh just under just around 300 international dollars uh in terms of cost per dally averted and we found that it per child for the whole course of the Burkitt lymphoma treatment, it cost about 1,350 bucks. So in terms of these WHO thresholds, uh, it was well, well below um, the very cost-effective threshold with a ratio of the cost per DALI averted to the per capita GDP of 0.14. So you'll remember I said anything of a ratio of less than three to one is considered cost-effective by that um, approach, and anything less than a one-to-one ratio is considered very cost-effective.
0: And, and the so, ratio was, I'm sorry, what was it?
1: 0.14.
0: Oh, so wow. So, well, one. Wow, yeah. And which is why I think you said at first that it was wildly cost-effective. So maybe <laughs> we need a new category.
1: Maybe we need a new category. Uh, you know, one thing we didn't include in the paper, but I think is interesting, is um, some comparisons around... Other interventions, uh, and this is, again, getting to the point of opportunity cost and and budget impact and stuff. Other interventions in the context of either Uganda or sub-Saharan Africa uh, in terms of the overall burden of disease averted, so national DALYs averted and cost per DALY averted. And when you look at this lymphoma therapy package, it compares extremely favorably to things like measles elimination with a lower cost per DALY averted based on published estimates. Vitamin A fortification with a slightly higher cost per dali averted, though not uh, though definitely in the same ballpark, and way way less expensive than something like colorectal cancer screening in sub-Saharan Africa. So that helps give some context to um, you know just how cost effective this is in terms of looking at comparators with all the caveats that it's hard to look at comparators across totally different studies and contexts. But uh, that's just a flavor of uh, how this might stack up if you were to think about other interventions uh, in Uganda or in sub-Saharan Africa.
0: Wow. So take, for example, the measles um, cost-effectiveness. Say again what the comparison was for measles vaccination?
1: Yeah, again, with the caveat that this is just based on some published estimates, and sure. I have nothing to do with these numbers. So we have, you have to unpack them to do proper comparisons. Sure. But there's published estimates on the cost per dally averted of measles elimination in Uganda of around 550 US dollars. And you know, you're know you trading things off like how much bang do you get for your buck in terms of an individual child? And then you also have to think about it on the national level in terms of how much does our society need to put into the uh, resolution of this problem in order to um, have it be effective. And so, you know, measles uh, elimination would require really kind of broad blanket uh, vaccination policies across the whole populace of Uganda. So the national dally's averted would be much larger. It's a bigger potential health system problem than something like Burkitt lymphoma. Um, Although Burkitt lymphoma compares favorably in terms of the bang for buck in an individual patient context. So these things are trade-offs, right? You might be getting more per crank uh, of the wheel for your money in Burkitt lymphoma, but you're going to be affecting or helping a smaller proportion of the population,
0: right? Which is where the dallies come in: is that an individual patient will have, will have or lose? I don't know what the right way to say that is. Lose more dallies, have more dallies. An individual patient with Burkitt lymphoma will have more dallies um, than say an individual patient with measles on average.
1: Yeah. Or another way of saying that is for the inputs, you get more, you save more dallies in a patient with Burkitt lymphoma, arguably than, uh, in the measles elimination category, just by virtue of how morbid and et cetera, but you will affect less people. So you're Both your potential budget impact will be smaller with Burkitt, but you also arguably it's a smaller health system issue as compared to something like
0: measles. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can see how that would need more unpacking, but I can also see how um, an honest and nuanced conversation of these two metrics would lead to um, hopefully better, on average, health uh, resource allocation decisions.
1: Yeah, one would hope. I mean, these the, the way these decisions are made at the political level level are a whole other can of worms and something worth their own study. But at least these kinds of metrics begin to give you uh, a place to start talking, right? Yep. you can compare things on. You can start to compare closer to apples to apples, and you can um, begin to make some of these trade offs uh, in a deliberative way. But th- that even that example gives you a sense of how complex these trade-offs are and all the moving parts you need to take into consideration when making these decisions. It's yeah. very hard to choose one person's life over another person's life, which is effectively what this is asking us to do.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, looking just at a few more of your results, can you mention the or can you explain what you saw in terms of aggregate costs for the this treatment program with Burkitt's lymphoma um, and the day saved from that?
1: When you say aggregate costs, do you mean sort of at the per patient level or do you mean overall in terms of um, the cost of the whole society?
0: Uh, good question. Cost to who? So let's see, you mentioned that there's a national cost of $834,000. Um, I think that would be cost to society.
1: That's a cost to society. Yeah. So the per patient cost uh, we said was around $1,350. And the in terms of the total cost to Ugandan society, we had it I think pegged at around eight hundred and thirty-five thousand U.S. dollars, or around two and a half million international dollars. So again, those numbers mean nothing in without context, um, and would need to be obviously put into context in respect of the national health budget in Uganda, which fluctuates year to year, and um, I'm not necessarily privy to, but at least those numbers give policymakers some semblance of how much of their budget this um, would eat up and whether or not they therefore can prioritize it and whether or not there are alternative or innovative sources of financing they might need to leverage in order to make it happen, given other health system commitments. Yeah.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. So we talked through your main results being the $97 of the cost per DALYs, $1,300 per child. Uh, total costs and eight hundred thirty-four thousand U.S. dollars as a total national cost. So, just talking about costs, um, and we just went through an exercise where you have to say cost to who. So, one of the main groups of people that we have to consider in these calculations are the families themselves and what costs they are incurring. Uh, did you quantify that at all?
1: Yeah, that I mean, I think the part that of this study that I would have loved to do even a bit better. So this study was done, I guess there's a good news story to this and a, and a bit where I think we could have improved. The good news bit is the study was done, as I think I mentioned, in the context of a Burkitt lymphoma therapy program that was um, a collaboration between uh, the Fred Hodge Cancer Research Center and, the Uganda cancer institute, where there were some external funds, philanthropic funds provided to support the treatment program by the Burkitt Lymphoma Fund of Africa, amongst others. And so the vast majority of costs for this were not borne by patients and families, but were covered by the program. And so that's a really important uh, thing and an important distinction in this context that uh, that enabled um, most patients to cleave to therapy and enabled us to capture most of the costs in a relatively uh, straightforward way because they were on our books, so to speak. And that's a privilege in the context of this uh, limited health system intervention that oftentimes childhood cancers don't have, right? Families are often, in many low-income country contexts, bearing the vast majority of costs associated with cancer care, um, be it the core stuff that they need to be treated with, like drugs and tests and uh, procedures. Um, and hospital stays, uh, in addition to the regular stuff that might not routinely be covered by health systems like how much did it cost you to get to the cancer center, how much did it cost to stay while your child was in hospital, how much did it cost to feed yourself and your family, and how much did you lose by not being able to work while you were caring for your child. Those latter costs, again, which we called family costs in the context of this study, were not um, comprehensively captured in our study, though we would have liked to do that a bit better. So we were able to uh, capture uh, transportation costs, uh, accommodation, and food. We were not able to capture in any rigorous way. Most of the time, this happens in pretty informal ways in the in the setting of the study. In the sense that uh, families will often stay uh, in hospital or with friends, uh, and food will be purchased um, either in uh, local shops or. Or made by families themselves while staying there or eaten with friends and family in uh, Kampala while they're there. Um, So that was very difficult to capture in our study. And the thing that was even harder to capture was lost economic productivity. Um, So, you know, if a mom comes to care for her child with Burkitt lymphoma at the UCI and she's not able to engage in her regular paid work, then oftentimes um that's accounted for or it's endeavored to be accounted for in economic evaluations for obvious reasons uh, and we weren't able to capture that and again in this context largely that's because of the size uh, of the informal sector in Uganda and how most people are employed in the informal sector so very difficult to capture these those kinds of those kinds of costs since our study was started and designed and executed uh, there have been a number of attempts to elaborate more systematic methods for capturing these kinds of costs. Uh, some really nice work done by colleagues in Canada and with collaboration in India and so forth. So those are the sorts of things that I think in future studies could be taken forward to sort of better capture some of those family costs of care.
0: Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So there's a little, so there are costs that are not accounted for in the final DALI number. And you have to acknowledge that fact. It's just a limitation of the study. And right. then, did I understand you to say that the treatment costs, as this was part of a, a formal study um, looking at treatment of Burkitt lymphoma, that was covered? So that was not borne by the families themselves?
1: That's right. And then the other thing to note, Mark, I guess, about those family costs not being covered and the how big a limitation that is on the study, I think for two reasons, it's not a huge limitation. And again, it mm-hmm. depends what you want to be able to say. So those costs, I think, in the as compared or totted up against some of that um, co- actual cost of care, were relatively are likely to be relatively marginal. Most of them, um, things like the cost of accommodation and food while uh, while staying at the um, at the cancer institute, uh, not necessarily from the point of view of patients, but at least in terms of pure costs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I guess the other thing I'd say there is: it depends. Whenever you're conducting economic evaluation, you have to think about the perspective from which it's conducted. A full accounting of all of those costs. Would really be trying to say something uh, from the societal perspective, like how much does it cost our society to uh, engage in this treatment and uh, its outcomes? You can also conduct economic evaluations from a governmental or health system perspective. So that wouldn't account for full societal costs like lost economic productivity. And so you can still say something to policymakers about how much it would cost their health system to treat Burkitt lymphoma and how cost-effective it might be, even if they weren't proposing to cover all family costs like transportation, accommodation, lost
0: economic productivity, etc. Yeah, I see. That makes sense. Okay. And then you also did something called a sensitivity analysis, looking at changing different parameters um, and what would happen to your estimation of cost per DALI. So can you walk us through uh, which parameters you tinkered with in the sensitivity analysis and what it showed you?
1: Yeah, so we did a very basic uh, univariate deterministic sensitivity analysis. Nowadays, depending on the economic of model, you can do much more complicated probabilistic sensitivity analysis, analyses that vary multiple parameters at the same time and model the effect of those uh, Sort of concomitant changes on model outputs, but for the purposes of this, we thought it more uh, straightforward and elegant to just do some to vary basically or toggle, as you say, one parameter at a time and see how that what that would do to the Dali uh, cost per Dali. Averted. Uh, The things we changed were uh, basically our overall measure of effectiveness, so overall survival, and we varied that based on the confidence intervals around the survival estimates. We varied our discounting rate. uh, We varied the duration of treatment, and that was the thing that actually affected the cost per DALI the most. Uh, So that was basically uh, how over what period of total time we allocated fixed costs to each patient. You can imagine if a child underwent therapy for 12 months with Burkitt lymphoma, that you would allocate less, um, you would allocate 12 months worth of personnel salary and overhead to that uh, patient in a very simplified way. Um, But if their duration of treatment were shorter, you would allocate less in terms of fixed costs. So we varied that parameter. Uh, And we varied uh, our assumptions around late effect morbidity or um, the decrements in quality of life uh, accruing because of late effects of therapy. Uh, so those are the main things that we that we talk, that we take root with.
0: I see. Yeah. So for the duration of treatment, like you said, it looked like the, the cost per dally dropped down to $49 if it was only for six months of treatment and there was a maximum of $195 for 24 months of treatment. You said that one was the largest range in terms of what would change in different scenarios. And then. Yeah,
1: so, putting that into context, you know, that was our sort of outside limit or outside bound of uh, the most expensive this um, or least cost effective, I suppose, this intervention could be. And it was $195 per DALI averted, which is still, if we want to use the word wildly again, still wildly <laughs> cost effective.
0: Yeah. That's great, and then just circling around also to discounting. Can you define what that is? Oh, that's a
1: whole other podcast.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I,
1: I will, as as a, I should say, you know, in, in full disclosure, I'm not a card carrying economist. Um, I have some training in health economics, um, but I'm much more a political scientist than I am, than I am an economist. So I will give you the political scientist's uh, definition of discounting, uh, and you might need to engage a, a health economist because uh, for a, for a more uh, detailed explanation, because discounting is actually quite controversial. Hmm. So what discounting effectively does is render future costs and effects less. Uh valuable uh, for lack of a better term, because there is a general feeling from evidence and um, from theory that future costs and effects are valued less than present ones. So it's a rate by which future costs and effects are made less valuable or discounted. And different rates are used. Sometimes uh, both costs and effects are discounted, sometimes only one or the other is and the rates that are used and how to discount both and the models by which they're discounted uh, and the literature on this uh, is quite controversial and vast. Uh, and um, there's a lot of assumptions behind it itself. But basically what we did is vary, used 3% as our base rate of discounting, which at the time was congruent with the WHO approach and varied our discounting from zero to 6% for um, their stipulations. If I'm not mistaken, those, uh, those m- sort of normative assumptions around discounting have changed uh, in the interim uh, with WHO updated versions of WHO choice. And I believe, actually, don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm not sure where they currently are. We'd have to look that up. Okay. Uh, there's still an approach to discounting, and I can't remember what the exact number is they use now. If okay. it's different.
0: All right, fair enough. Um, but that makes sense. I mean, so you're trying to say some people value future costs differently. Some people don't value them as much saving some saving money 20 years down the road. Other people value it a great deal. So it's just a way to try to embed those assumptions. Although I can see how that would be very controversial as you debate about uh, what does a discount a feeling about the future really mean?
1: Yeah. And there are ways in which some of these things you can imagine benefit or um, hurt different populations in different ways. And so there needs to be some thoughtfulness around how to do this in both a coherent way across interventions, but also in a way that doesn't have implicit biases to certain kinds of groups of people or certain kinds of health conditions, et
0: cetera. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, well, I can't believe it, but our time is coming to an end here in just a few minutes, which this these kind of conversations are very fun to me. So um, I've been having a good time. Uh, with With the time remaining, can you go ahead and tell us like what do you hope for these numbers? You know, you you produced some estimates of costs um, and now they're out here for the wider world to discuss. Uh, What do you hope that they will accomplish going forward?
1: That's a great question. I guess a couple of things. So first of all, I have no illusions that this one study is going to change the game in Uganda or change the field in terms of economic evaluation in child health or in childhood cancer globally. But I do see it contributing to a growing body of literature on the cost effectiveness or value of childhood cancer in a more global context than has hitherto been undertaken. And I'm proud of that. And, you know, you mentioned uh, colleagues that have done global burden of disease studies. And um, so we're working with friends and colleagues like them and colleagues like uh, Dr. Kambugu and others in uh, low-income country contexts who treat children with cancer to try to keep increasing this body of literature such that uh, it does a couple of things. One, um, I think, is a force for advocacy in terms of childhood cancer globally to get both global health governance institutions, uh, uh, philanthropic funding organizations, and national governments Um, to be more aware of childhood cancer and aware of the fact that it's a treatable condition in many respects, to be aware that it's different than adult cancer and oftentimes much more cost effective as an intervention, so that there is some semblance of recognition that this could be low-hanging fruit politically in terms of investments in health systems. Uh, So that's one of the main things I hope that this does in kind of a global sense. Um, and I also hope that in Uganda itself that numbers like this are uh, informative to uh, our colleagues at the UCI and to policymakers in the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Finance, etc., in terms of thinking about how to invest health system resources uh, in a sustainable uh, and equitable way uh, so that hopefully these kinds of studies empower Dr. Kambugu and her colleagues um, to uh, advocate for childhood cancer's inclusion and in things like Uh, universal health coverage, and broader NCD uh, coverage in a place like Uganda. We've done comparable studies to this one in other contexts now, including Ghana and El Salvador, and uh, at present uh, in a comparative way across a few sub-Saharan African countries. And again, all with a view to the purpose that we'd like our colleagues there to be equipped with ammunition in going to their ministries of health to and, and relevant um, leaders there to say childhood cancer can be a priority should be a priority and and this is the data um, that supports that uh, so if this in any small way contributes to those sorts of efforts uh, I'll be very uh, very gratified.
0: Great and just thinking broadly across these other countries are you finding similar numbers in the other studies?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, again with the caveat that the studies are being done in different ways uh, in the sense that they're not focusing necessarily exclusively on one disease like Burkitt lymphoma, but actually more often looking at the cost effectiveness of supporting an entire unit to treat childhood cancer. Yes, we are finding that I think Burkitt lymphoma is one of the cancers that's probably most cost effective to treat. And I think that is largely as a result of the fact that it's very curable. And also that it takes mainly chemotherapy to cure uh, and that surgery and radiotherapy are not a huge component of therapy for Burkitt lymphoma, apart from perhaps biopsy of the tumor. And so those are added system uh, and institutional costs that need to be considered much more in the context of some other cancers and can increase costs and therefore decrease cost effectiveness. So Burkitt lymphoma would probably be on the quote unquote cheaper or uh, more cost effective end. But I think what we're finding across contexts is that childhood cancer uniformly remains uh, cost-effective, if not very cost-effective. And um, so really, the next question isn't, should we do it? But how do we do it um, in a way that can fit into health system priorities and not bankrupt a system?
0: Yeah, I think that's well said. And we will probably have to leave it there. But um, this work was very compelling. I mean, it's very, very informative, and uh, it's interesting to see how it applies specifically to the context in Uganda and to Burkitt lymphoma, and then how you um, see the limitations as you look abroad to other countries and to other diseases. So we appreciate your work and the way you articulate its importance. I think this is a very, very valuable and really so far missing piece to the global oncology story. So we I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and explain. Uh, the ins and outs of economic evaluation and cost effectiveness analysis.
1: Thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure to do, and I'm really gratified you took interest in this. Uh, I hope I explained it with some clarity, the non-economist that I am. And I guess the only, the last plug I'll put in is really just that. I think as a childhood cancer community, uh, in terms of this kind of data, it has to start with us. And I would encourage us not just with economic evaluation as kind of the missing piece, but really health systems thinking as the missing piece uh, for taking our issue uh, forward in a way that's going to resonate with health system leaders uh, and be able to be integrated into health system in a way that we can hopefully say in 20, 30 years time that far more children with cancer are being cured around the world uh, than are today. Uh, So uh, thanks for taking a bit of interest in this, and uh, I'm really encouraged to see that more and more of our community is kind of uh, waking up to that um, charge
0: and that reality. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Avi, and um, we look forward to seeing where your work goes, and hopefully we can have you back sometime to um, continue this discussion about uh, how, how you approach health systems thinking, and specifically economics.
1: Thanks, Mark. That'd be a pleasure.
0: Thanks, bye.